Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, everybody. I'm Dr. Andrew Sheehan from the San Antonio Military Medical Center. Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Julie Bishop, who is currently the Chief of Shoulder Surgery at The Ohio State University mm-hmm. Wexner Medical Center. Dr. Bishop's paper entitled Factors Influencing Surgeon's Choice of Procedure for Anterior Shoulder Instability, a Multicenter Prospective Cohort Study, was published in the July 2019 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. Dr. Bishop is a University of Wisconsin alumnus. I hope you appreciate how much uh, pain it took me to emphasize the in the Ohio State University introduction. So um, thanks for joining me. I'm I'm excited to be chatting with you. Oh, well, happy to be here, and thanks for having a Buckeye on your show. It shows that you are a mature adult ready to lose on October 25th. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Um, so I really enjoyed this paper, and I, I like papers similar to this um, because I like, I'm, I'm curious, probably as a lot of our readers are, is to kind of getting an idea of what um, surgeons are doing uh, for complex, controversial, and common problems. Um, and you acknowledge the conspicuous limitations uh, of surveys being that it's really just the surgeon recalling uh, what it is that they do. And so I like using these intraoperative platforms to actually get a sense of what, in fact, they're doing. So so kudos to you guys uh, for using this uh, Moon uh, database in order to answer an important question. And, you know, I really agree. I think what, uh, what we really like and uh, what I really like about our database is that it really is true, accurate, hard data. You know, we recorded everything, all of our radiology results, the physical exam, the interoperative findings, um, and as soon as we were done the surgeries, and of course we're done dictating, we immediately filled out the form. So you finished the surgery and the forms were waiting in your inbox. Um, and so it's really what we did when we took into account interoperatively all of the radiographic and patient factors that we were aware of. So can you summarize the two or three main points of your paper, what you want the listeners to take home from your study? Sure. You know, I think as you alluded to, one of the primary things that I like about the paper is that it really lets the reader know what the surgeons actually do in a variety of different situations. And so knowing all the different patient factors, structural factors, um, it lets the reader know what was actually done. I think so many times uh, we're at meetings, um, you know, our readers are at meetings and there's panel discussions with different case presentations. And you never really know for sure if what the panelists say they would do is really what they would do. And I think with this paper, there's no hiding. With a certain situation, this is what we actually did. So I think that is um, the main take home. I think a second point is that this paper really shows that the bank art, the open bank art, is becoming a lost art. And there have been several older surgeons that have expressed concern um, just after reading this paper, knowing that this is the moon shoulder group, these are academic shoulder surgeons, and there was such a low number of open bank arts. Um, and then when open bank arts were done, they were primarily for revisions. And then I think the third point to take home is that I think we showed that bone loss, especially in greater amounts, really is more frequently addressed uh, with open surgeries such as the latter J, and our surgeons were hesitant to perform arthroscopic stabilizations on those with bone loss, especially if it was a high-risk athlete. So I think those are really some of the most important points. I see. So, and I, when I was structuring uh, 
the questions I was going to ask, I went, I went back and forth about where to put the next question, but I just can't take it. The suspense is, is killing me. So I'm going to switch the order here. So, um, and, and they pertain to your practice patterns. First of all, what are your indications for an open bank art repair? And second, how well do you think the results of the study parallel, parallel the way that you uh, approach instability cases? I'm sure. So, you know, I think it's interesting is that my indications for an open bank art have really changed over the years. So when I was in training, I finished residency in 2002. And so for me in residency, I only saw open bank arts. Um, And I trained with Bob Neviser, who many know is um, a staunch uh, defender of the open bank art. So I never saw an arthroscopic bank art till fellowship. And then I got out of fellowship and it was all arthroscopic. Um, that was the way to go. And you did every single bank art arthroscopically until we started to realize, hey, bone loss matters. And a lot of these bank arts, even if done really well, fail in the younger population. So at this point, my practice has kind of morphed to the point where I feel like if I have a patient with minimal to no bone loss, but they're a high-risk athlete, a contact athlete, that 15-year-old football player who has some ligamentous laxity, I am worried that no matter what I do arthroscopically, this patient has a high risk of failing um, a scope. So I um, am leaning more towards open bank arts in that population. But um, because I think in these patients, if there is no bone loss and they're 15 or 16, I'm really hard-pressed to do a Latterge. So for me, I think these are the best patients for an open bank cart. And then what was part two? Oh, how, how do the results of our study parallel uh, what I do? Um, and I think for me, um, with bone loss, I am a much more apt, whether it's revision or primary, to do a Latterge. Um, without bone loss, I still really do a lot of arthroscopic uh, procedures. But I think where I deviate from the results of our study is that if it's a revision, I rarely do a scope revision at this point in time in my practice unless there's a really clear reason. It was poorly done. There's only one anchor below the equator. Some clear-cut reason that I think I can actually do, you know, do, a, do a better job. Um, if it's a revision, I don't really tend to do an open bank art. So a lot of the open bank arts in our study were revisions. And I have found that if an arthroscopic surgery fails and then an open bank art fails, it is really not fun doing a ladder J. So I tend to skip that step with a revision and I'm more apt to go straight to a ladder J for a revision. I see. And then one of the, one of the predictors for what, what procedure a surgeon did, and, and you hinted this was was bone loss and then um, specifically hill sacs lesions. How did uh, how did surgeons determine the size of these defects? And so the one thing that we did with the moon study is we did not want to dictate to any surgeon how to determine bone loss because we really figured if this is really what we do, then everybody is alone with their CT or their MRI and they make their own decisions. So we let it be up to surgeons, but we did ask for several numbers. So we asked surgeons to first determine in millimeters um, the size of the hill sacs from the x-rays. We then asked them to determine um, in percent and millimeters the size of the hill sacs from your CT or your MRI. And then we correlated that with the, um, the millimeter size of the hill sacs interval or the hill sacs width um, intraoperatively. 
and we did not measure depth, which is something that a lot of people talk about. That's, that is certainly not a number that we had surgeons record. And so for just the measurement, I think on the x-ray, on your internal rotation x-ray, we just use the ruler tool and measure the width of uh, the hill sacs. And that's really measuring from the posterior cuff insertion um, to uh, the most medial aspect of the hill sacs. Now, certainly there was a recent paper um, by Burkhardt that was actually just published in arthroscopy that um, looked at comparing um, your 3D classification of your hill sacs um, to your interoperative, and they found that the greater tuberosity size did impact um, their, their radiographic uh, measurements. So they did not have a great correlation, but that's really what we did. And then for percent, we really did it on your axial or your CT cut, again, from the posterior cuff insertion, and then, you know, you can measure to the lesser tuberosity insertion, and then do a width, and then get that as a percentage of the whole. Does that make sense? Yeah, it sure does. So, and from a big picture perspective, again, though, that you guys did not want to dictate to the surgeons exactly how they went about characterizing those, those defects. Right. And I would probably say some of our younger surgeons were very detail-oriented and truly sat down and did all the calculations for on-track, on-track. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of the older surgeons really said, okay, well, I'm looking at an axial cut. 50% of the humeral head is right down the middle. And then you just eyeball, okay, well, that's less than 25%. It's more than 10%, and we're going to go in that, um, you know, in that category. But for our measurements, yeah. you know, you would get a probe or some, we would all use an arthroscopic instrument to accurately measure um, the, the millimeter uh, width arthroscopically. You know, I wonder if you repeated this study in five or six years, if, if you'd see more surgeons doing remplissage. Do you think that the, the relatively low numbers of remplissage in your data reflects the fact that surgeons are still warming to the idea of this glenoid tract paradigm? and that it's a relative, still a relatively new concept? And, you know, I think to some extent, yes, I, I think your, your comments are correct. Um, you know, and again, when I was training and for a really long time, the belief was the hill sacks doesn't matter. Um, and the only thing that matters is that you fix the glenoid and you restore the glenoid um, shape width. And so a lot of people just said, ignore the old textbooks say, oh, don't worry about the hill sack. It doesn't matter how big it is. If you tighten them up enough, they won't engage. And I really believe that that is something that we're really going to show in the upcoming years, that the hill sacks is a lot more important than we think it is. And I think as our data comes out, especially if we showed that this could be a difference maker for our at-risk young contact athletes, the people that are highest risk for failing a scope, if we start to have data that shows, you know, if you add a remplissage, your recurrence rates are lower, um, I think we're, we're going to be addressing the hill sacks more as time goes on. So maybe the pendulum might swing back towards an arthroscopic intervention in the setting of a revision, or do you think that the, the jury is out and the majority of surgeons have, are, are going to be reluctant to embrace an arthroscopic uh, approach in a revision situation? I think if we can show that there are techniques that we can add that work, I mean, even if you look at, um, 
you know, Ivan Wong um, from Canada, his work on just doing bone blocks arthroscopically, even if it's minimal bone loss, he'll repair the labrum to the native glenoid and put a bone block in um, for these patients. I think we're going to evolve back to there are arthroscopic ways that we can reduce the recurrence rate. I see. Was there anything about your results that surprised you and your co-authors? Hmm. Um, I think the one thing that did surprise me um, would be at this point in time um, that so many of our revisions were done arthroscopically. Um, we have some really skilled arthroscopists in Moon Shoulder, and they're really purists for the arthroscopic technique. And in their hands, they're very confident that a revision, uh, an arthroscopic revision, uh, will work. Um, and I think it was surprising, but not really, how few open bank arts we did, just because that is been something that's lost along the way. Um, but I think what's so great about Moon Shoulder is that we're collecting all of our long-term data. So all of these people that are enrolled that we have their time zero data, you know, some of those patients were now six. I actually saw a patient back in my office today for his opposite shoulder, and I enrolled him in Moon for his right shoulder six years ago. And we're collecting all of this long-term data. So I think we're actually going to be able to find out what really worked and what didn't work. Yeah, and and therein lies the the um, the promise of and the power, I should say, of of prospective platforms like like Moon in order to be able to elucidate answers to these really really important questions. So uh, again, um, my hats off to you and your co-authors for investigating this, um, and thank you so much again for taking the time. Um, to talk with me this evening. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me and uh, happy to answer any questions anytime. Hopefully it uh, helps the readers with some decision-making on these tough instability cases. Great. Yeah. So, well, that's going to do it for this podcast. Dr. Bishop's article entitled Factors Influencing Surgeon's Choice of Procedure for Anterior Shoulder Instability, a multi-center prospective cohort study in the July 2019 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, and can concurrently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us and have a good evening.